Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back for another series of History for the Curious, the podcast. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Hirsch, for taking the time to do this with us. Thank you. So the first series about scandals in Anglo Jewry was a massive success. And we are now moving on to a new series called Holocaust Dilemmas. Now, this is a three-part series. And it's about understanding the choices and the different situations that arose as a result of the tragedies that the Jews lived through. Now, this week, we are discussing the rabbi, as you named it, in year 1941. Rabbi Hirsch, the mic is all yours. So, the dilemma can be described as follows. What would you do if in 1941, someone knocked on your door and told you a story that was so far-fetched and so terrible that no one could believe it? So much so that to tell it to others would simply be foolish but to keep it to yourself would be criminal. What would you have done? That was the dilemma that faced a number of rabbis as the terrifying news of the death camps in Poland started to filter through. But that wasn't the full extent of the question, because even if somehow you were determined to publicize this and break through the wall of disbelief and make the impossible, the unthinkable become credible, to whom? Each town was isolated, without recourse to communication, travel, weapons. Most towns no longer had a leadership that could take decisions. And beyond all of this, there's perhaps a bigger question. Should people actually be told the truth? Was it right to introduce absolute terror into their lives when it wouldn't change the situation on the ground at all? To what gain? Unlike Hungary in 1944, when the German war was seen as a lost cause, Poland offered nowhere to run, no one to call an ally, and therefore the question was, what do you do? On January the 20th, 1942, a Jew knocked on the door of Rabbi Yaakov Silman, the rabbi of Grabov in eastern Poland. Who are you? The rabbi asked. Rabbi, I'm a Jew from the world to come. And the rabbi looked at him as if he were crazy. Jacob Grzanowski had made his way to Grabov, having escaped from the Chelmno death camp around 70 kilometers west of Lodz, where over a quarter of a million Jews would eventually be murdered in conditions which were unlike the concentration camps because the death camp had no selection process and would therefore have virtually no survivors. But in order for it to be able to function from the Nazi point of view, they needed one thing above all, and that was secrecy. The inconceivable element of the plan that they were carrying out was only possible as long as the truth wasn't out there. Now, the Nazis took advantage of the forests in order to keep these murders a secret 
And the extermination process in Chelmno was so quick that the Jews didn't even have time to realize what was happening, much less a chance to escape. And especially cut off from all sources of information was the main ghetto in the region, in Lodz, with over 150,000 Jews, which was almost hermetically sealed. Now, a few dozen Jews were kept alive for the most horrible job, removing the bodies from the vans and burying them in a clearing in the nearby forest. And they were guarded very carefully. But despite the strict guard, Jewish slaves tried to escape. And Yaakov Grozhanovsky was one of them. As he himself put it, at the end of evening prayers in Kaddish, I decided to escape no matter what the price. People must know what is happening. And at moments of danger on the way, I called out to God and to my parents to help me save the Jewish people. And this led him eventually to the door of Rabbi Silman. And he repeated, Rabbi, I'm a Jew from the world to come. Don't think I'm crazy or have lost my mind. They murdering the Jewish people. I myself buried an entire city of Jews, as well as my parents, my brothers, and my whole family. I am left all alone in the world. And as he spoke, he wept. Where are they murdering them? The rabbi asked. In Chelmno, they're gassing them all to death in the forest and burying them in a mass grave. Now, at around the same time, Michal Podschlebnik also escaped from Chelmno and ended up in Saniki, where he revealed to Rav Yishromish Aronson the details of what he had seen. He estimated that around seven to 800 Jews were being put to death every day and buried in mass graves. He had seen his own wife and children among the dead and recounted the anguish of the Jews in the Zonderkommando who buried their own families. Now, these escapees from hell felt obligated to describe everything in full detail in order to convince other people that it was really happening, maybe also to convince themselves that they'd really seen it. And wherever they went, they made a tremendous effort to tell the facts to the people there. In fact, Grzanowski would subsequently be trapped in the murderer's claws as he travelled from town to town on this mission of the damned and probably perished in Belzec. Whereas uh, Michal Pochlebnik and Rabbi Shomish Aronson would somehow survive the Holocaust. A different town also played host, so to speak, to one of those who managed to escape in Pietrakov, which was also in the vicinity of Helmno. The rumours had been circulating since the start of 42, but the local Jews refused to believe them. In March of 42, however, two fugitives arrived in Pietrakov and came to the home of the famous Rav Moshe Chaim Lau. The rabbi sat with one of them, a person by the name of Vidovsky, and after hearing his story for an hour, he came out and asked his eldest son, Naftali Lau, to assemble a few of his friends, among them pre-war members of the communal council. Vidovsky repeated his story, 
and as Rabbi Lau records it, he talked compulsively. The rabbi wrote everything in his notebook, and the others listened, petrified. No one moved, no one spoke. Naftali Lau would later write, My father asked me to type the Yiddish transcript on a Hebrew typewriter, and he then helped the two escapees make their way from the town and avoid the Gestapo agent who was tracking them down. Yet another fugitive was a young Chosid who escaped Treblinka, another of the death camps, whom the secular poet Yitzhak Katznelson encountered at the home of Rabbi Eliezer Yitzhak Meisel in Warsaw. The youth opened his jacket and showed his raw, oozing wounds. He had climbed over fences of barbed wire in order to make his escape, and he said that two of us escaped, I and another. I wanted my brother to join me, but he couldn't summon the strength to do it. That's Nelson tried to write down what he heard from the young man about the railroad cars, the horrific extermination site, but at times it just failed him. As he would later write, what point is there to my writings? Who will we inform about these things? Whom shall we adjure to avenge us, and why? I cannot proceed with all that this lad told us. I don't have the strength. And therefore, various rabbis were the first to find out when the extermination first began. Such an incredible burden of information to have. What did these rabbis do with all this information? So Rabbi Aronson made various attempts to pass on this information. However, locally, a lot of the people felt or hoped that it was simply a localized issue to the towns around Helmno, and they wouldn't contemplate escape. So he then informed the head of the Judenrat of the entire region of Upper Silesia in an attempt to get him to perhaps influence German policy. If the Jews knew, maybe the Germans would uh, scale back. And the answer from the head of the Judenrats was focus on establishing workshops in your towns and enlisting for work if the Germans ask for volunteers. Now, the delegation that had come to see him was shocked by his reaction, but Rabbi Aronson understood only too well that what he was saying was that there was nothing he could do, and it was perhaps better not to cause panic by letting people know. The majority would die, and no one could save them. Their fate was sealed, and perhaps the few who could somehow provide service may outlive the war. And one can only imagine this chilling sentence rendered in almost conversational tones would have been enough to send any man over the edge. Nevertheless, Rabbi Aronson persevered. He used unusual methods to get a message to Rabbi David Bornstein, the Sochotrova Rebbe in Warsaw. Using allusions to the book of Esther, Megillus Esther, he described to the Rebbe the desperate situation, 
and he wrote, Aunt Esther from 7 McGillar Street, Apartment 4 is coming, which meant Chapter 7, Verse 4, in the Megillah, Kinim Karnu, for we have been sold out, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And had we merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept silent. Which is how Esther put the predicament of her people. And he wrote it in code so that the people he was sending it with would not be tortured if they were discovered with this on them. And a few months later, he received the Rebbe's reply, again in the form of an illusion. The Rebbe referred to the need to be strong and to play Grandfather's composition, Opus 23, number 4, which was an allusion to Tehillim, to Psalm 23, verse 4, Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear evil, for you, God, are with me. And this, once again, was accepting a fate for which there was little that could be done. Now, Rabbi Aronson continued his efforts throughout the war, and wherever he found himself, he would record the events, even when he was in a labor camp, and he wrote them down, and in fact, this journal survived the war. Now, Rabbi Sulmanin Grabov managed to get Grudzianowski's testimony past the sealed walls of the Lodge Ghetto. And even though by then more than 50,000 Jews had been sent to Chelmno, the inhabitants of the Lodge Ghetto had not received any reliable type of information as to where they were being taken. They were just told they were being resettled and they had no way of knowing any differently. But according to several testimonies, this was the first document to reach the ghetto, a postcard from the rabbi of Grabov, and its text was etched in the memories of people from various groups who saw it, Bundists, Zionists, religious Jews. The postcard was dated January 1942, when the murders began in Chelmno, and it is hard to determine exactly when it reached the ghetto, but it was signed by Rabbi Silman, and the contents of the postcard are described similarly by all the various sources post-war. Having said that, when the head of the Lodge Yudenrat was approached by one of the rabbis in Lodge to report what he had personally heard, Rumkovsky replied that he already knew and instructed the rabbi to keep the report a secret so as not to cause panic in the ghetto, a very different reaction to that of the rabbis. Now, there is another letter from Rabbi Silman in the Ringelblum archive, which was discovered after the war. It was written in Yiddish on January the 21st, 1942, and he writes as follows. With God's help, Grabov, Wednesday the 3rd of Shvat, 5702. Dear relatives and loved ones, we can now tell you of the dreadful occurrences near our town, which were a heavily guarded secret until now. For your information, four weeks ago, all the Jews were deported from the town of Kolo, men, women and children, and were taken by trucks in an unknown direction. The same happened to other towns in the district. Despite all the efforts that were made, we heard nothing about them and received no word of what had happened to them. This week, however, 
some Jewish refugees who managed to flee from that place came and told us that they are all being killed down to the last one. They are asphyxiated with gas and then buried en masse in a single grave. New victims are being brought in incessantly every day, and the danger of a similar fate hovers over everyone's head. Obviously, this horrific news caused us terrible panic and indescribable fear. We declared a fast day today, the third of Shvat. You should know that what was kept secret until today must now be made known everywhere. You must raise an outcry. Do not rest. Do not be silent. Take counsel and come up with stratagems regarding how to save those who are still alive from these dreadful decrees. Do not be silent. What about Rabbi Lau? Where was he on all this? In Pietrukov. So he told as many of the townspeople as he could, and there were quite a number who believed the account. The rabbi was held in very high standing, and they fled to the forest, or they hid on the Aryan side if they were able to, or they volunteered for forced labor in the glassworks, which still needed 600 workers. And Rabbi Lau advised his son and others to leave the ghetto. However, he made a very clear-cut decision for himself that a shepherd does not abandon his flock in the face of a pack of wolves and that he would not save his own skin and abandon them and stayed with his community and was sent with them on their final journey to Treblinka in October 1942. Now, in addition, the various Rabonim sent out young women who are less likely to be identified as Jews if they are caught from various youth movements to Warsaw with a copy of these letters, uh, but nothing is known of their fate and we assume that they were caught. And in addition to that, a number of the accounts were put together and eventually smuggled out via the Polish side of Warsaw to the Polish government in exile in London around four to eight weeks later, although they were only published in London and New York in the summer of 1942. What was happening this whole time in Warsaw? I believe the largest ghetto in the Holocaust was Warsaw Ghetto. What, what was... Yes. So the reality in Warsaw was very different. There were almost a half a million Jews behind walls, guarded on the inside and on the out, and escape was basically an impossibility without outside help, and there were very few who were that fortunate. There's a book called Words to Outlive Us, which really conveys the hopelessness of the largest ghetto under Nazi control. And that meant that even when the truth was somewhat known, there were very few options. We know in hindsight, there was a Jewish uprising in Warsaw in 1943, but the intention was never to liberate the ghetto, but to die for a cause, and was therefore only embarked upon when the 450,000 Jews had been reduced to 70,000, and no family members could be made to pay the price for an individual's actions, because by now they had all perished. So they embarked on a different trajectory. We find in the religious underground newspaper in Warsaw, which we still have copies, that emphasis was placed on a spiritual response and avoiding despair. One article writes, Many nations have waged war against the Jews, but Amalek 
made the annihilation of the Jews its goal, its program, in cold blood and according to a plan. They want to destroy the entire nation at once, rip out the roots, eradicate Judaism. So they understood there already what would be the fate of Europe. And they go on to say, you know, what is the required response? If Amalek comes because we became lax with respect to Torah, then we have to intensify Torah study. If Amalek's power stems from doubts and questioning is God among us or not, then we have to strengthen our faith and trust in Hashem. If Amalek draws its strength from our coldness, and from our helplessness, the stragglers, as we mention in Parsha Zachar, then we must be strong, suffer as Jews, and withstand all the trials. And finally, if Amalek disseminates cruelty, torture, and evil in the world, we have to nurture amongst ourselves a sense of Jewish compassion that is deeply rooted within us to help one another, support the needy, give some of what is on our plate to those who have none. A call for reinforcing Jewish values, even under these conditions, because that is who a Jew is. Now, it is altogether quite rarely noted by secular historians and museums around the world of the role of rabbis in spreading the initial word of the murders perpetrated in the Holocaust. And even though these rabbonim, on being told this information, must have been paralyzed, that, that must have been their first reaction. But they were driven by a sense of communal responsibility, by an understanding that a hatred of Jews burns in Nazi-occupied Poland, and that ever since Mount Sinai, we are seen as a singular nation within the world. And these rabbis were determined that the truth should be told, at least to record it, or to try and ensure that maybe a member of each family would somehow survive. And the reason I've called this podcast The Rabbi, despite the fact that five or six Rabbonim were aware and faced this dilemma more or less at the same time, is because each one did so in isolation. Each one did so alone. Well, it's fascinating that they believed what was going on. You can only imagine when they're coming forth to people and saying the horrors, even just to believe the facts. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That brings episode one of Holocaust Dilemmas to an end. Next week, there will be episode two. Please join for next week. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you.